0: Jeff Webb is an acclaimed American business entrepreneur, founder and chairman of Varsity Spirit, which he started out of his apartment in 1974 and is now a multi-billion dollar company with many thousands of employees. Jeff recently refocused his efforts as president of the International Cheer Union, where he was able to secure cheerleading, yes, that energetic American sport of cheerleading, as an official Olympic sport in 2021. Jeff is also the publisher for Human Events. It's a longtime Washington, D.C. based conservative website and a second media platform he will tell us about. He is the author of the Amazon bestseller, American Restoration How to Unshackle the Great Middle Class. And Jeff Webb is my guest coming up in this episode.
1: About a year and a half ago, the company, uh, you know, was approaching 2 billion in sales. We had about 7,000 employees, uh, operations in all 50 states. Just overall, I think uh, uh, the, the kind of enterprise that I was, I was very proud to lead for all those years.
2: Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne.
0: I hope you're all well. Jeff Webb, my guest coming up in a wee moment, is going to inspire and get you thinking about America and the promise of the American dream for all. His account of how he made a major business of cheerleading across America is just breathtaking. I must say, I was taken aback uh, being from Ireland originally and now living as a proud and happy American Yeah, I was just blown away. We never had cheerleading in Ireland. It's not really something that has taken off yet in Ireland. Maybe it will one day. But it's sort of the quintessential American symbol of energy on the sporting fields Cheerleading is certainly a distinctly American part of our culture, as witnessed every day in our schools and American sporting events. It also has the stirrings of a world-class appeal. Jeff Webb is living the American dream himself, but he is worried about the future for millions of Americans today struggling to make ends meet.
1: The one thing most middle-class American families could count on for generations, especially beginning after World War II, was that if they, they went to work, they job they did a good job, they could stay there, they had job security, well, now they don't really even feel like they have that. So it's a, it's a real challenge, and I think now with the pandemic, and of course with what's what's happened in this country over the last year and a half, and with what we're seeing with inflation, uh, it's it's a, it is a it's a fight out there, and it's it's a in, in my opinion, figuratively, it's a ticking time bomb.
0: Before we get to my interview with Jeff Webb, founder of Farsity Spirit, it's time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 segment with labour force expert Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back to Future Shock 2.0. You're going to tell us about the five skills that are needed by college students today.
3: Talking about Future Shock, there was an article recently in the Wall Street Journal and it was titled Five Skills College Students Will Need for the Future Careers. And it caught my eye because I, I hear, you know, this is my this is my world. There's certainly what are the in-demand jobs, what are the in-demand skills? Uh, what are we teaching college students and how are we preparing you know, students for the future, I work. They talked about uh, these are classes that are now starting in colleges. One of them was entrepreneurship in the metaverse. Reminds me, I wrote about this 20 years ago in a book, and we were talking about, you know, working in a virtual world. And, you know, here we are 20 years later, and we're still talking about work, working in a virtual world. So, you know, what were the skills? And, and it was interesting because it was talking about creating, how, how will they create value in, in the metaverse? How will they conduct business? Uh, it's being, the, the one course is being sponsored by the University of Virginia, uh, Darden School of Business. So this is serious stuff. Some people may laugh at it, but it's there. But other really important ones, uh, ethics and AI. I mean, we're struggling with that all the time. And that's going to be, you know, it's certainly skills that probably we all need. I'm not sure you need to be a college student to have that, but uh, ethics and AI. Uh, And then some of these other ones were interesting is designing for natural disasters. Thinking about climate change. thinking about that. Um, How do we not only prevent it, but how do we deal with it? And we're going to have to deal with it. And then we get back into some... Curious ones. Uh, building a personal brand uh, is a college class now. It, I, I guess it goes back into things where we were twenty and thirty years ago about gaming, uh, maybe about ID. Uh, you know, creating your own, you know, ID and, and entrepreneurship. But building a personal brand uh, is now going to be real critical, and especially when blockchain takes off and and our and we're able to post our resumes and our careers and on, on blockchain. And then the final one, I guess a lot of people will applaud is called networking 101. Um, You know, just because we talked so many times that people were only communicating through their devices, especially young people, and especially the last three and four years, they were in lockdown, they were quarantined. High school students were entering college, college students were uh, were taking courses online, and now they're going into the business world, so networking one on one. So I I thought that was interesting. About it wasn't just entrepreneurship, but entrepreneurship in the metaverse, but then ethics and AI, and networking, and designing for natural disasters, building your personal brand. And I I know we're short on time here, but I, I. also looked at what were some of the most in-demand jobs outside of that. On the technical side, the, the, top, the top five, and this is from Glassdoor, the top five skills was machine learning, distributed computing, which was linking multiple computer systems and devices together, time series analysis. This, that's over my head. I'm, I'm a tech guy, but I have no idea. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. so you can look up the article in, on Glassdoor, statistical modeling and usability testing. So they're pretty high level. And when we talk about skills gap shortages, uh, they're there. But then we looked at more non-technical ones. And it talked about product management, looking at the life cycle of a product. You know, products aren't going to last for decades anymore. They, you know, they they last for short periods of time. Contract administration, what that's going to look like. Project management, business planning, and account management. Those are the high in-demand skills right now and for the next 10 years. You know, there's a lot goes down, a lot of opportunities for college students uh, out there, but it, it's not the old biology, polycide, chemistry degrees that are going to be in high demand
0: and we'll have more next week from ira wolf ira is a tedx speaker author and a top five global thought leader in his field and he is host of the popular geeks geezers and googleization podcast and there's also another podcast out there that you won't want to miss it is the top rated podcast Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. I am proud to be hosting this great weekly podcast on Apple, Google and on all of the big platforms. In the latest episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we talk more about the latest set of job numbers from the Bureau of Labour Statistics in the US and we'll take a closer look at the data with a sceptical eye. We'll look at the state of the markets and it's not all as rosy as the government stats are showing us. We'll also look at the Fed, inflation, trouble potentially and realistically in the housing market and also we'll look at the Inflation Reduction Act and lots more. I'm your host John Aiden Byrne.
2: We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people.
0: My guest is Jeff Webb, the dynamic founder of Farsity Spirit and an American with opinions on lots of things in politics and on business and on the attacks on the American middle class. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Jeff Webb, welcome to my show. Thank you very much, great to be with you. I'm honored to have you as my guest. When I hear about your life story, your career, and all you've done, and I read your bio, I think of the Renaissance man. You're the quintessential Renaissance man, and I don't mean to flatter you, Just going through what you've done, you're founder and chairman of Varsity Spirit, which you started in your apartment in 1974, and now it's a multi-billion dollar company with more than 5,000 employees. You recently refocused your efforts as president of the International Cheer Union, where you were able to secure cheerleading as an official Olympic sport last year. You're also the publisher for Human Events. It's a long-time Washington, D.C.-based conservative website, and you're author of the Amazon bestseller, American Restoration, How to Unshackle the Great Middle Class. You also recently purchased another uh, media website, and you've combined them with your other website, Human Events. So before right. we get into all of that, Jeff, how did you get to where you're at today? It's the American dream writ large.
1: Well, I'll try to make it a shorter story for you. Uh, as you mentioned, I um, well, I grew up very much in a middle class family. Why I really wrote the book about a year and a half ago is to talk about the kind of the the, the, the journey and, and the, the the challenges for the middle class. But I grew up in a middle, very much a middle class family in uh, Dallas, Texas. I went to public schools, went to the University of Oklahoma, uh, was a college Yell leader there, and then uh, after graduating from college. I, uh, I took a job really that I thought would only be for about a year I was getting ready to go to law school and I needed, I was tired of being broke going through college right. And so I thought I'd make a little extra money so law school wouldn't be quite so uh, difficult. And I went to work for a, a gentleman, named Lawrence Herkimer, who, whose company ran some of these training camps for college and high school cheerleaders during the summer. He promoted me real quickly through the organization, which had been around for 20 years. And uh, um, I found myself, I didn't really know I was an entrepreneur at the time, but I, I found, my, found myself frustrated with the the kind of the rate of change. I thought it was too slow. I thought the company wasn't that forward looking. I just was always restless and anxious about it and eventually uh, resigned from that company and started my own company doing training camps as well, but with a different twist. And uh, I positioned it so that we we took what was a um, a classical and effective student leadership position and then added athleticism and entertainment to it. So when you see on the college sidelines today or at a high school football game, cheerleaders and all the different things that they do or you see cheerleading on ESPN, um, that was really kind of my concept in the beginning. That's what I brought to cheerleading. And I got very lucky. Uh, I I started my own company with uh, just some uh, capital from friends and family and ended up not being enough, which I can talk about later if you want to. But um, anyway, I built that company out and and we added uniforms. We eventually added the concept of cheerleading competition, which uh, people see on television today, and then just really built it out over a period of, you know, 35 years and ended up with camps in all 50 states and 300,000 kids are people at our summer camps. Uh, The competitions became huge um, over, over 250 competitions. The uniform company we started now provides most of the uniforms for America's college and colleges and universities. We've developed an international uh, presence and, um, uh, just a very, I was very fortunate um, along the way just to have a great team and people that believed in what I was doing and uh, really contributed to it as much or more than I did, frankly. But um, that's, that was kind of how I, how I built the company. And then, as you said, I recently um, I left Varsity because that, I, was, I was at that point in my life where I really wanted to do something different and uh, try to build something else in a different space politics had always been kind of my love and my hobby. And so um decided to get into, you know, building these uh, political media platforms. So it's kind of where I am today. Have a lot of fun, by the way.
0: Yeah, you seem to be very um, stimulated by all this. And you've a man of great ideas, it sounds like. When you started your company, did you expect it to grow so to be such a major empire? What was the vision at that stage? I had, I envisioned it
1: the way it is today, all those years ago. Not really (laughs) when I, when I look, when I started out, I really just was going to be running these summer camps and kind of changing, uh, kind of transforming what cheerleading was and to kind of see if I could make it with this image that I had for it, because I thought it could be something exciting. I thought it could be attractive for a lot of uh, young women and men to be involved in. And, um, that's really what I started out doing. And, and I, when, I, when I speak on entrepreneurship now, especially to young people or college students, you know, I talk about vision. And I say said, I said that, you know, I, I'm not one of these people who believes that you've got to have exactly what you want to do. I think you just have to know generally what you want to do. And then I think you have to make that successful, commit yourself to it. And then as much as anything, be opportunistic, have your antenna up. Look for things that you can you can bolt on to your original concept. And that's pretty much what I did.
0: And, and of course, a, a certain element of luck always plays a role in a successful business. But on the other hand, you have to be 100% behind it. You Here. described there how you had some capital funding problems, right? Tell us about that period in its growth.
1: When I, when I started the company... I uh, put together some uh, some money just from friends and family. The total capital was $85,000, more money than I thought I would ever need. Turned out not to be true. Okay. And um, when I was, uh, and then the, I started that in November, and then the summer camps where you get your revenue really wouldn't start, you wouldn't start getting registration till May. So I had to go all the way through from, from November to May, spending money, uh, running uh, promotional workshops to show people what the what the summer camp experience would be like, we ran all the way through the money I mean literally almost i mean almost ran out almost to the day then the first registration for camp started coming in, and we were able to get through that first year and make a profit, I think it was about a dollar and a half or something like that and <laughs> but it. but it was official right it was it was uh, we were in the black and uh, as as I grew the company for a number of years, really for 10 years, I never went back and got more capital. And we weren't really able to borrow money at the time. I mean, I was 24 years old. 24 years old, I could walk into a bank and say, yeah, we want a line of credit for a cheerleading company. It's like, sure, <laughs> is this a joke, right? So I had to learn about financial discipline, really, to, to keep from going broke. So you know, we we uh, we I was always playing every year as we were growing. Whatever we'd made before, I would go through the original capital and that. So um, I was playing bet your life every year, but we were able to we were able to make it work. And um, you know, eventually we did some transactions. We did a we did an LBO. We we went public. We've been with private equity. So you know, been through kind of the the ringer and all the different uh, all the different kind of financial positioning
0: because Farsity spirit Farsity uh, spirit is a well-known company brand now and it's the leader in your space
1: yeah it is we were able to to build it to be a pretty significant uh pretty significant enterprise so once we we really built the cheerleading part of it out um to uh, kind of be the leader in the field we then eventually talked about being opportunistic. Uh, we merged with a um, graduation company called Herf Jones, which uh, specializes in class rings and yearbooks and you know, graduation um, gowns and so on, and then acquired BSN Sports, which was the number one direct supplier of sports uniforms and sporting goods in the country. And what we did was position varsity to be the extracurricular partner to America's schools. So, you know, when it, when I left um, about a year and a half ago, the company, uh, you know, was approaching two billion in sales. We had about seven thousand employees, uh, operations in all fifty states, and um, just overall, I think uh, uh, the the kind of enterprise that I was I was very proud to lead for all those years.
0: We'll talk about what else you do in a moment, but as I think of this, um, I'm an American citizen. I was born. And raised in another in, in Ireland. But, uh, to me, like cheerleading is the quintessential, um, American, um, uh, sport, I suppose, if that's the right characterization. But I would have never have imagined it, you know, could be leveraged into this major company. To me, it's fantastic, extraordinary. I'm sure some people looked at you and said, Jeff, are you out of your mind what you're trying to do here <laughs> in the early days?
1: in the early days they did and uh but i had a lot of support you know i really when i went to my parents said this is what i'm thinking about doing you know Uh, they could have said uh no you're too young that you were going to go to law school go ahead and do that you know take a safer route and it was exactly the opposite they were like this is what you want to do you're young you know you have these ideas make it happen. And so I had that support from the very beginning. And then when I when I started the company, I my first employees to go out and run these camps were the top college cheerleaders who they were about my age. So we were all kind of these young kind of restless rebels, you know, trying to make a point and prove that we could do this new thing. So it was it was it was not only hard work, but it was a lot of fun. Mm. And uh, just to be able to to be able to build something that uh, becomes a successful business. That's first. It was never the driving force, which I'm happy to get to if you want to. But but not only that, but to do something that involved your friends, that people really were committed to, that actually provided a great service for young people in American schools. It's uh, I just feel very, very fortunate and blessed to, to have had that opportunity
0: what are some of the most important lessons as a business founder and leader you've taken away from all of this
1: well i think that uh where do i begin right but if 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 it was if i was to generalize you know i think first um again when when i speak to people young people about entrepreneurism you know i I talk about having vision and focus and unity and the, the vision part of it i think as i mentioned earlier can be Uh, I think overplayed I think if you've got an idea you get started go for it right and then build with what you with 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 upon your success and expand with that success but having that vision and being able to explain it and to have to be able to find people that believe in that same vision who are aligned with you philosophically I think it's very important I never wanted people that just wanted a job I wanted people that believed in what we were doing and wanted to be wanted to help build something great. So I think being able to explain the vision, attracting those people, uh, and also always going back to it philosophically. One of the hardest things to do, it's hard enough to start a business, but when you actually become more mature and if in in our case we are fortunate enough to have the leading market share, it's 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 sometimes even more difficult to, to because people are then in this culture where you're successful and there's all this business opportunity to go back to. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it, and we all have to do our best every day. So there's the vision, and then the focus part of it. Um, in our company, we had our a culture called the heart and fist, and the focus part of it is kind of the fist. That's that's the execution. You know, as they say, go back to vision. There there are a million great ideas, but it almost always comes down to execution as far yeah. as success is concerned. But being able then to have the kind of people and the kind of processes, the kind of environment where people would be competitive, not, not just with our business competitors, but with themselves. Uh, how, do we, how do we make, how do we outdo what we did the year before? You know, that kind of competition. And then always expecting very best efforts, which is maybe the hardest thing. And it's important that whoever's running the organization sets the example on that, and that you're not afraid to get your hands dirty. And then finally, the unity part of it is the the, the feeling, uh, the support that the organization, uh, the people in the organization have for each other. It's that you know we have a big heart for our employees and our customers. Uh, we back them up. We 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 let them fail, but we stand behind them. Uh, We want them to be able to expect that from us because the time always comes when you have to expect that from them. You know, every business, like every person, is going to have good things and bad things happen to it. You know, if if you are a business that's sustained over a long period of time. So you have to position yourself and have a culture that not only is able to capitalize on the opportunity, but able together through that kind of that fabric, that, that, that emotional the fabric that runs through the company to get over the tough times as well.
0: So you need a good, strong corporate culture. You mentioned execution I'm reminded of what people in sales and marketing have told me uh, over the years you could have great instincts about moving product and selling homes or whatever but if you can't close the deal it's no good in other words you have to have that drive and energy to get the business done and to grow
1: yeah it's absolutely right and I think especially to sustain a business you Mm -hmm. know it's a It's one thing to start a business and set up not i know how hard that is but i think sustaining a business over a long period of time is really i mean that's where it's the great separator i think as far as talent and and dedication but that culture the execution and for, for for me execution has always meant you know it's always meant doing your best and making sure that you don't accept anything but everybody's best and that again it starts at the top you have to give those efforts yourself But um, yeah, I think execution, uh, quality, high quality, great customer service, the concept of continuous improvement. Those are the things that you bake and you combine with a great great culture, then uh, you end up with a pretty special business.
3: Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the US are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
0: My guest is Jeff Webb, the dynamic founder of Farsity Spirit and an American with opinions on lots of things in politics and on business and on the attacks on the American middle class. I'm your host, John Aden Byrne. So Jeff, today you're the president of the International Cheer Union and last year, you were able to secure cheerleading as an official Olympic sport. That's it. that's amazing. That's great. Yeah.
1: Well, it's it said, our, our inner, we created an international federation, the international cheer union, a number of years ago, was 12 or 13 years ago. And the idea really wasn't to get cheerleading recognized by the Olympic committee, it was, we wanted to take cheerleading, uh, win and make it global. And again, we weren't looking necessarily at the money. Um, but we were looking at, we have this great sport, it's American, it's, it's really not even, you know, it's, it's, it's not even practiced that many countries, maybe Canada, and some of, the, some of the, the Commonwealth countries, if you will. And so what we found out in trying to expand was that in many of these other countries, they have a much different approach to sports than we do in America, as, as you know, yeah. from, from Ireland, in that, you know, um, in this country, we don't have sports from the top down. The government doesn't decide what sports are going to be successful. We decide that in our neighborhoods, right? Through little league baseball and youth soccer and youth tennis. You know, we decide ourselves with our own leagues. Now, part of that is a result of our having a very comparatively, a very large and affluent middle class where, you know, we're able to support these things for our children. In a lot of other countries they they don't have that luxury if you will and they depend on and just culturally it's different they depend on the government for for facilities for coaches for equipment for leagues well what we found out was to get that kind of government assistance to help to help facilitate the development of the sport in these other countries we had to get recognition from the international olympic committee because Many many governments go. We're not going to support a sport unless it's recognized. It's just kind of the way they're set up. Well, that was a long journey because we, we just started. We we had an organizing uh, weekend with 15 different countries and literally just started from there. And we learned a we learned a whole lot. We were very naive. It's a very developed and. Um, Uh, It's political. I don't mean that negatively, but you have to understand, you know, the the interaction between the federations and the Olympic committees. So it was a long road. Uh, We had to jump through a lot of hoops. We had to build an organization with the world championship with all kinds of safety um, provisions set in. We had to be financially stable. We eventually had, we now have 117 uh, national federation members out there. And uh, in, uh, in Tokyo last year during the Olympics at the International Olympic Committee meeting, uh, they voted to recognize us as, as an official um, uh, sport by the IOC.
0: That's great. So going forward at future Olympic events, we'll see all these competitions and different nations competing.
1: Well, that's what we hope for. That's what our members hope for. Um, it's, it's not, it's not the end goal. The main goal was to create the recognition so that our sport could develop at the grassroots level in all these different countries. So we're well on the way to that. Would it be an incredible uh, opportunity for us to showcase our sport, to help grow it, uh, present it to a wider audience? If we could be in the games, yes. But um, getting in the Olympic Games is not that easy. I can tell you that there are a lot of sports that want to be there. There are sports that have been, been part of that program for a long time. You know, you have to you have to pay your dues, and so we're you know we're just we're marching forward.
0: At the start of the interview, you mentioned that you grew up middle class and you lived and are living the American dream. You uh, prospered and did all the right things. Uh, along the way, you wrote a book, Restoration, How to Unshackle the American Middle Class. Uh, an interesting yeah. title. Why did you write this? And just tell us a little bit about it.
1: Well, I think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, politics was kind of always my hobby, my kind of my love, you know, I, I didn't have time to really be that involved because I was building that business and eventually building a family. And, you know, I, just, I could only contribute. I, I was a news junkie, if you will, but always very, very interested. And, um, you know, when I uh, I got to the point where, I've you know, I really built varsity out and I decided it was in good hands, then I wanted to do something different. That's you know, I wanted to keep the the International Federation to still be involved in cheerleading, but also wanted to pursue um, politics in some way to find out where I could actually make a difference. You know, as I really began to study all the statistics and really look at what was happening, all the dynamics in the political marketplace, I was and, and I was really struck by some of the some of the uh, articles I'd seen on the middle class and how the middle class was was being more and more challenged and kind of falling behind just slowly, incrementally uh, reflected in things like the fact that uh, that frankly, in the last couple of generations, most families have to have both parents working to be able to get by to afford the kind of middle class and maybe lower middle class in my in my case, uh, standard of living. So you see that you see the fact that uh, this is pre pandemic pre pandemic, Forty percent of American workers were living paycheck to paycheck, no extra money to save for their vacation, for a medical emergency, for retirement, paycheck to paycheck. That's very dangerous. The average unpaid credit card balance, seven thousand dollars. Now, that doesn't sound like a huge amount of money, but if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you can't pay that off. And you're paying what 18% interest? You know it's there. It's hard. It makes life difficult. Um, the number of the number of families where their kids have gone off to college, they come back. They're either underemployed or unemployed. They move back in. You know they're they're living in the basement. I mean, people are people are struggling. And they, and now of course they've lost, and the pandemic accelerated this. The one thing most uh, middle class American families could count on for generations, especially beginning after World War II was that if they they went to work the job they did a good job they could stay there they had job security well now they don't really even feel like they have that so it's a, it's a real challenge and I think now with the pandemic and of course with what's, what's happened in this country over the last year and a half and with what we're seeing with inflation uh, it's it's a it is a it's a fight out there and it's it's a in, in my opinion figuratively it's a ticking time bomb because I think at some point, where do people get to when they don't feel like they can provide for their families, where, where they lose hope, you know, where they, where they don't have anything to look forward to, and they just feel frustrated. And um, I, think it's, uh, I think it's something that really has to be addressed. If we want to have the kind of country and the kind of economy and prosperity that this country has seen in the last hundred years, we've, we've got to get busy. We've got to really do what we can to help the middle class.
0: Your solution to this problems middle-class America is experiencing. We do read the stats that people are are behind on their payments, living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, The American middle class is disappearing. We read about that constantly. Now we have inflation. Apparently, we had a surge in job numbers last week, but people have examined those and said, those jobs are, the numbers are not as realistic as they've been officially portrayed as, you know, there's a lot of low-paid jobs and there's a lot of part out
1: there. Yeah, I read a figure today where 350,000 of that 500 and something thousand new jobs were part-time jobs. And the inference is, which is still being dug into, is that a lot of these are part-time jobs that people who are already employed. Are taking to be able to deal with, with the, the ravages of inflation and if you look and it's, it's kind of borne out when you look at it and see how many people have still not entered the, uh, the labor force right so it's it's the same people so we're not we're not really a, we're not on the path we need to be on so as far as the solutions are concerned um, that's a lot of what my uh, what I have in my book um, again still available on Amazon if uh, people would like to pick it up uh, American Restoration. But I take all those different things and 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 talk about how we got here and what the what the problems are, and what the solutions are. Long and short of it is that we've we, you know we've really gotten here over the last sixty years. and we've just gradually increased the size of government. We've gradually made it more difficult for the middle class to have kind of standard of living that they were expecting for, or that they had expected for generations. You know, we, we didn't even talk about crime. We didn't talk about the national debt. I mean, this, it's very complicated. It's not going to be easy. Um, the poor, the, the, I, I really feel for the, the millennial generation, Gen Z, those young people coming along, that we are going to leave with this incredible national debt. That's gonna to have to be dealt with. Nobody's even talking about it, really. It's not at the top of anybody's list. Printing more money, people say, we're just gonna be able to print more money. Well, now we see how that works, right? We see what we get from that. So that's not gonna be the answer. But you know if I could say if I could sum it up in one thing. Now, this is a long road. It's a return to true federalism. I mean, through through both both parties. We have grown the federal bureaucracy. We've grown what the government does and what it controls. People feel like they don't really have a voice in making changes and standing up for their families and their communities. I think if we can begin to get back to those decisions being made at the local level, at the state level, and we can bring the cost of government down and and put it at the, again, the state and local level where people are more accountable, where they have to be more transparent, it's a huge step in the right direction. So I think that's an opportunity there. I think part I think I think uh, Donald Trump now looks back and sees what the uh, uh, kind of an unbridled uh, federal government can do to anybody. But I think it's something that a lot of people are starting to talk about. Uh, it's going to take a lot of time. We're not going to undo the last 60 years in, you know, in four years. but. Um, you have to get started. So I think there are answers to every one of these things. None of them are difficult. A lot of them are underpinned by political corruption. I talk about that. That's uh, is one of the main things in my book, legal and uh, what I call illegal and legal corruption. Almost all of it goes back to the size of government and what it's responsible for and what it makes decisions on and how it affects our lives.
0: So smaller government, and then presumably lower taxes I would think you're in that camp then what about the individuals and families themselves and this concept of personal responsibility I mean it's become a bit of a cliche what does that mean but how can families maybe delayed gratification or or you know build up a nest egg and do things that are maybe prudent and fiscally responsible but that has to come from people themselves maybe good leadership at the top could inspire them any thoughts about that?
1: Well, I think you're right. I think uh, inspiration from the top is important. But I think it's, uh, it, look, I don't want to say that people don't have an opportunity to build something themselves. They do still have an opportunity. I just think it's harder in this day and age, I just do. And I think th- the one thing that we can try to do is is, is get rid of this, this albatross around their neck of, of big government and high taxes and schools that aren't accountable, that aren't, are doing the kind of job that they want for their children. You know, we are starting to see, um, again, one of the results of, uh, of the pandemic, where where parents had to actually help their kids and get on the computers and see what was being taught. We're seeing the great pushback now. And I think it's just the beginning. And I hope it is. I hope it's this beginning of a reawakening of taking back our country, taking back our personal freedoms, and being able to stand up for our families and our communities.
0: I don't know what the latest numbers are, but I know recently homeschooling was surging in America because parents didn't like what they were seeing in the public school system. And now there's this debate and controversy over the curricula in a lot of these public schools. Um, It really bothers a lot of parents. I think, I think it does.
1: And I think that, um, you know, it's one thing when somebody does something to us, good or bad, that's one thing, but they do something to our kids. That's a lot different. I, I, I tell people that if somebody can do something for you, that's good. They do something good for your children. You never forget it. You never forget it, but it works the other way around, too. You know, they do something bad to your kids, and there's going to be hell to pay. And I think that's what we're beginning to see. I think people have, again, seen what the curricula have, have been, and they've looked at it and gone, I'm not going to have my kid in that. And if I can't get the kind of child, I'm not going to wait three years for some gradual change. I'm going to take control of, of, of what I have now. Sometimes that means changing to a different school, sometimes a private school, or, or, or maybe another public school where you don't see that. But people are impatient. They're not. They're not willing to have their kids go through two or three years uh, of this kind of garbage and this kind of subpar education. I mean, our kids only get one chance. We only get one chance with them, right?
0: The midterms are coming up. Uh, any thoughts about that? And then the other bigger one: Will Donald Trump run again?
1: Well, I think the midterm is going to be very interesting. Um, you know, I sometimes I hate it. This may surprise you a little bit but i'm kind of a glass half empty person um, i mean you know what is it uh, andy grove of uh, intel founder of intel is only the paranoid survive right <laughs> so uh but i I'm, I'm very worried about overconfidence on behalf of the republicans uh i think this talk of the of the, the this great red wave you know in some ways if it happens i think there's an opportunity to thir- turn things around but I think I think you know we're we're setting ourselves up for failure with some very very lofty expectations. I th- I hope it's true. I I think I think the Republicans are going to win the House. Uh, I guess they can. I don't know what that really gets us. Maybe it stops some things from getting through. Uh, Biden has already shown that he has no uh, he has no problem using, uh, you know, executive order to, uh, to to do things that probably some about half of which will probably be deemed illegal by the Supreme Court. But why not try it? Right. From yep. his standpoint. But uh, I think the Republicans have a very, very much an uphill climb on the Senate. Um, so I think uh, I think it's still I don't think it's going to be as much of a runaway as people think. And then then the question is, how much difference is it going to make? With regard to 2024 and you know, everything that I'm hearing out there is that President Trump intends to run again, I guess there could be some great surprise. Obviously, there are a, a number of people who are trying to do everything they can uh, above board and below board to try to keep him from running, whether it's being um, deposed today mm. uh in new york and then also obviously what happened at mar-a-lago two nights ago so yeah. there's a real effort afoot to keep him from running uh, i i think he intends to run
0: yeah well that seems to be the award out there in uh, circles and uh, at some point he's going to announce but he's given lots of hints and apparently just heard on the radio today but i haven't seen it uh, there was a, a video made which kind of hints that he is going to run i don't know if it came from the Trump camp but I'm going to research that a little bit you have a media company as well and speaking of Trump you had an interesting opinion piece you wrote on human events that was back in March Uh, it got my attention Uh, it was referring to the war in Ukraine which was then just starting and it's a very sad spectacle and loss of human life is is awful but uh, you said that the obsession with trump basically was getting in the way of bipartisan solution to this in essence that's kind of what you were driving at
1: yeah part and, and and actually the obsession with vladimir putin or making putin the kind of this bogeyman if you will who was trying to affect the elections and everything was russian right the russians were Undermining everything and Putin was yeah, I'm not saying Vladimir Putin's a, a good guy But I think that having positioned him as this kind of the, the things that were said about this He's a psychopath. He's all these things They in effect they took away their ability to into to really in, saving face actually have you know significant substantive negotiations and we just went seems like we just went all into this to this war and We, the United States should be trying in every way that we can to stop this war. Mm. And um, how many more billions are we going to spend? And how many more Ukrainian lives, especially civilians, are going to be lost? And we should be putting, we should be the leader in the world of trying to drive some type of peaceful solution, some type of ceasefire. I just don't see us doing it. And I think it's how we positioned
0: Putin. Because in that same article, On human events back in March uh, you said that France took the leadership role back then Macron and it should have been the United States
1: correct I mean look at the difference in the size of our countries and the the power and the wealth of our countries I mean we're the leader of the free world you know we should be in the position of exert of uh, exerting our, our our leverage and trying to trying to develop some sort of solution i mean we are there's no end in sight we're getting closer and closer i think to, to to risking nuclear war people assume that the russians won't use theater nuclear weapons who says who knows where does that lead us so i think i think underestimating the potential danger for our own country being drawn in militarily in a much bigger fight than we've seen since world war ii i think is real I certainly feel for the Ukrainians. Um, I I think that the civilian population in particular has paid a very severe price, but I all hear how realistic it is to think that by providing arms, certain arms to Ukrainians, the Russians are going to leave all of that Eastern territory. We have to be realistic. We have to be, we have to be empathetic and sympathetic. We need to get busy trying to stop this war somehow.
0: Some commentators have said that if Trump had been in office, Putin wouldn't have invaded. He would have been dealing with a stronger person and that he ran roughshod over the Americans under Biden.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess we'll never know. I mean, I'm, he's uh, he seems to be a very shrewd individual and uh, pretty good at uh, gauging uh, kind of where the power centers are and what the reactions are. are. I mean, can give you, you know, what he did in Crimea, so i I just we just don't know, I don't know yeah. what would have happened.
0: yeah well, let's hope there's some resolution soon to it it's it's, it's a dreadful and it's creating this anxiety globally I, in fact, you know that was so curious to your take on the overall scene across the globe economically and politically. we seem to be in a very strange place. Are we going to come out of this? Where is everything headed?
1: Well, I think economically, we're you know we're in a hell of a mess here. I mean, you look at inflation here, which is even worse than Europe, as, yep. as you know, slightly worse anyway. I don't see a real end in sight on that. I mean, is it going to is it going to bounce from nine and a half to to eight to seven and a half to ten? I think that's probably what we're looking at. Um, I think that. The you know the answer that everybody's talking about is raising interest rates dramatically, which puts us in a recession, which which uh, helps which hammers the economy and costs people jobs, especially the middle class. By the way, I, I don't I don't know what's going to make it a lot better. I know that to start to get to the end, we need to stop printing money. We need to stop giving money away. because yeah. we need people to come back to work. For a lot of reasons, not only financially and for our economy, but just for our culture, you know what work does for people from a self-worth standpoint. So we need that. And just um, globally, I've re- I really worry about the direction our military has taken. I just I don't see any real uh, real plan, any real policy. I'm not sure what we stand for and how we're going to use our diplomacy and our military if we have to i just don't see the plan and the policy certainly it's not clearly defined
0: when you said the direction our military has taken what did you mean by that
1: well i think the uh, the emphasis on notice having trouble recruiting right okay. having trouble recruiting that's that's a symptom that's not good that's not going to companies having trouble recruiting that's not a good sign uh, certainly, there's a budget there. Certainly, they're trying to hire. They're having they're having trouble. Doesn't seem to be as attractive to people. I think uh, what they did with the vaccine, and then I also think, frankly, I think just the whole kind of woke approach to um, to the military, I think, is not that attractive to a lot of people. And um, again, I think the the purpose of the military should be to defend the country. We need to we need to be able to. If we're called upon, worst case scenario, we need to, you know, break things and kill people. That's what the military does in a war. And we just need to have the type of military that's efficient. We spend enough money. I mean, we spend more money than the top three or four other defense budgets combined. It's how are we spending the money, how efficiently what are we investing in as far as future weapons i just think there needs to be i think there needs to be a plan and to be honest with you i think it needs to be shared with the american people it's just this you know so much of government now is just this big blob it's people it's we what are these different agencies doing where's where's our money being spent what's the return what's the measurement what happens when a program doesn't work should go away so the military is i'm sorry it's just kind of in the the same boat as many of our, our, our 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 agencies
0: and, and we have all these threats or potential or imminent threats around the world. We could get into China and other um, hotspots. Um so you're saying that uh, the kind of Americans that join the military don't want to join a woke military.
1: That's the way it appears to me. I Don't have the numbers, but something's wrong. When you can't recruit, something is wrong. So if that's not what it is, leadership should be telling us what is the problem.
0: Um, a quick word you recently acquired in addition to your media company. Uh, if you want to give us the information on that and quick word about um, your publications.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, we uh, recently acquired the uh, the Post Millennial, which was a Canadian uh, media platform. Excuse, Younger Than Human Events, uh, Breaking News. Um, it's doing really, really well. It's a great complement to Human Events, which has more of a kind of a, this kind of rich uh, kind of intellectual legacy, if you will. It's more about opinion. Uh, and, uh, we're having a lot of fun putting these two media platforms together. We're keeping the separate brands. Each one has kind of the own thing, their own, uh, kind of sweet spot, if you will, in addressing uh, the news and, and politics. But we're also, we're also seeing where we can, uh, we can develop some synergies and each one help the other one grow. And it's, uh, Human Events Media
0: Group. And if people want to go up and read and see your articles and so on, it's human events.
1: humanevents.com and postmillennial.com.
0: Great. Well, I can see you're having a lot of fun. You're enjoying your life and you're building and creating wealth. Jeff Webb, thank you for being my guest.
1: Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email com. at gmail.com. That's burndesk B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com Subscribe for free.